One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. Now this week we are joined by director and author Tom Petch to talk about his 2013 film, The Patrol, which was the first British feature film to tackle the war in Afghanistan um, from the British perspective. Tom, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, great to, great to be on the show. I'm a big fan of the show. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Thank you. And, you know, again, thanks for coming on to talk about your film because as it is very rare to talk about a director about their movie. Um, and before we go on, if you haven't seen this film, folks, it's available on Amazon Prime. You can, you can buy it on DVD, Blu-ray, um, and it's really worth your time. So... As we usually do, you know, I'll cover production or Matt will cover cast or how we ever do it. But this week, as we have you here, Tom, would be a miss to not get you to run through how did the film come about, like the production of it. Please, regale us. That's a, that's a story. So um, it, so I was, it must have started. I did, I'd looked at the first draft script, which was November 2009. So there you go. And... Um, the Afghan war had, had, had rolled into the NATO deployment, you know, so so British troops were in, in Helmand and and things had come off the rails a bit. And it was obvious to me that probably the Taliban were going to win. But I think quite a few people sort of realised this policy wasn't working. And a mate of mine, he um, uh, he rang me up. He's another veteran like me. So I was obviously in the army, left 97. And he rang me up after a bit of a sleepless night. I said, Tom, we've got to do something. We've got to buy these guys helicopters because a lot of the casualties were coming about because they were moving by roads. And the Taliban could to, could target people using IEDs. And I was just sat thinking, helicopters, like, how are you gonna how are you gonna start a charity doing helicopters? I think this is before Help for Heroes had come in, which was, you know, that that whole charity initiative came around. And that was actually a bit of a sticking plaster because it didn't really solve what was going on on the ground. But anyway, so I went away, I thought about it, I thought, you know what, I'm in the film industry, I've been in the film industry in '97, I've made some films myself. They were short films, um, and TV commercials. I thought I could write a script. And I'd actually by that stage, I think I'd sold 
two scripts, neither of which got made. And I thought, I'm going to sit down and write it. And I sat down and write it. And obviously, with my sort of producer head on, when I was writing, I thought, we're probably not going to have a lot of money here. <laughs> you know, this, this is going to be a low-budget thing. So I sort of wrote with that in mind. And um, I could mention a couple of things. I, I, Battle of Algiers, which is a film I love, which is a black and white yes, war movie. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely yep. love that. Uh, there was actually more, there was a play and a, and a film called The Long and the Short and the Tall. So, yes, you know, the I, idea, yeah. you just get a really small unit, really simple story, and try and, and try and portray some of the truth Obviously, it's not a true story. It's a fictional unit, fictional deployment, all of that. But try, try and uh, to place, you know, portray some of the, the truth of what what it is to be in those situations. Um, and then fast forward to the following year, I ran it past quite a few people. I think including the BBC, who went on to do Our Girl, which was their take on the Afghan War. Um, mm. And nobody picked it up. I mean, I mean, I think at some point somebody said, "Tom, it's an anti-war movie about Afghanistan." You know, in this moment, no, nobody, nobody's going to take a take a punt on that. Um, and I then thought, well, you know, I've got production coming. We could do it ourselves, and that's and that's basically what we did. Uh, went into wow. production, shot it in three weeks. The crew came with me. I think they figured, you know, Tom's going to the desert three weeks. I said, "Look, we're going to the desert three weeks for shoot movie." I promise you, you're not going to get paid. You might get paid if we make some money at the end. We never do. But anyway, they call it deferment <laughs> in the independence, yes. which is the never, never of filmmaking. So, you know, um, uh, we went out of the desert. I mean, one of the one of the actual amazing things about production is I'd start in the film industry as a, as a location manager. And to really pull it off in Morocco, what we needed was somewhere we could base ourselves in the desert and shoot at the same time. And I am... Um, through a friend of mine who did big movies, like he did all the uh, Star Wars and stuff and the big, you know, epic sandals movies out there. He put me in touch with a guy called James Cutting, who sadly died recently. He was a, he was a fixer based out of America. She said, what are you after? I said, ideally an oasis with some accommodation and a ruined village. He said, there's a place I remember like that out in the desert, me and him and, and the woman who became my wife who drove out to the desert looking for this place. She actually spotted it from the back of the Jeep because we were looking the wrong way. So he said, hey, down that valley. <laughs> and what it was was... um. A Frenchman had started an eco-lodge out there uh, in an extra Berber settlement. And the Berbers had been, uh, Moroccan history, a bit complicated, but anyway, they'd been moved on. And that's what the compound was and everything in the movie. We felt it was, right. And when we brought a couple of Afghan vets out, they went, bloody hell, this looks like Afghanistan. And we shot yeah. in August. Uh, we shot in August, Ramadan, because it was closed. It was closed except one guest, who was really weird, when arrived, Prince was there in the, uh, the eco-lodge with his oh, right. back. And one of his real experiences arriving there to start the filming, I was going to run in the desert and I ran past Prince and a woman on a camel in the desert. Or the artist called wow. Prince. Yeah. So that's kind of how we, we got off the ground. Uh, what else can I talk about production? Can I ask me some questions? I don't know what I've done there. Um, so what you said about budget, like it's always, what I couldn't find anything online about a budget. Like yeah. what, what were you, money were you playing with to get we, the film we made? We had cash two hundred fifty thousand, which is nothing for making a film. Uh, I mean, I did all. We had one one investor who got behind us and stuck with us. Is a really great guy. Um, who I, I don't know how from networking thing I found him. I put my own money into it. I used that thing. Don't do this at home, people. But I did that thing they did in Clark. You know the movie Clark's, where they roll one credit card onto another. So I yes. ran up one credit, I maxed it out, ran out. Sorry, Barclays and all the rest of you, but that's what I did. And then eventually I ended up with a satellite. <laughs> that's how we got the helicopter out there. There was a point where my producer, Tom Stewart, is a great guy, said, to, Tom, we've got to stop production. We've run out of money. He said, we're never going to stop shooting. We'll just keep shooting. We'll be all right. And that's how we got through it. So it was a kind of wing and a prayer. And there were people I've got to shout out to, like on site, who had done a lot of post production with. They came on board to finish here. Uh, my my long suffering and, 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 and best mate, Luke Devil, who was the editor. 
who has um, stuck with me through thick and thin because it took us a long time to finish it because we came back and it took us because we didn't have any cash. We then went into post-production. We had to go back to our day jobs to finish it, which is why we shot in 2011. We didn't come out till 2013, which is quite a long time. Uh, Mm. Right. Yeah, because um, I, I remember when it came out, and um, I just couldn't watch it for a while, and then I noticed it come out on Amazon. So, yeah, um, did it did it have a theatrical release over here? Yeah, and actually, that that's the problem with that's changed now. With independent production, basically, you've got a theatrical window, which is where you get the cinema release, and then and then they hold it for three months, and then you get the DVD and then the online. Really, what you want as an independent producer, you want those two together. And we had mm-hmm. a problem in that. The distributor went for it, Picture House and people picked it up. We were only doing like 12 screens, so that wasn't really worth it. We had a lot of good press and stuff. And it would have been good if that had been compressed. I think that would have uh, been really good for the audience to get that all out once. That happens more now. That whole model has changed since COVID. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Stuff drops at the same time. Yeah, you Mm. you can pay for uh, your latest Marvel or go to the cinema, I think, pretty much. Yeah, Yeah. And you just missed the streaming boom by like mm. maybe a year or two I guess yeah, we, were we, were, we were DVD at Sainsbury's which was yeah like, yeah I think that's where I mm. saw it initially um it used yeah. to be the, the port of call for the the, the low budget war movie fan where you it would go and check the DVD that, that, that shelf by checkout <laughs> that's it yeah exactly um, <laughs> where we was there the two together yeah exactly I just thought I'd mention quickly the the cinematography um by Stuart Bentley he worked on Black Mirror this is England 90 top boy our world war bbc series and, and his work on the movie is absolutely top notch fantastic um, yeah fantastic. really good stuff amazing job and we did um we did a weird production thing which is basically when you're um when you're shooting you usually shoot a straight day which can be a 10 hour day a 12 hour day with a break at lunch and because we're in the desert in august the worst time to be shooting is the middle of the day because you get really strong overhead light the magic hour happens yeah. at dawn and dusk so what we did because we were kind of our own band really and living in an oasis uh, Stu and I decided we shoot morning, shoot evening. So we get up before dark, get out in the desert for sunrise, shoot, wrap up about 11, come back to this oasis, which had a pool, you know, it was beautiful. Everyone chill out, have a bit of mezze, you know, do lunch, have a siesta, and then we go out, out again for three o'clock to pick up the magic cat. So our shooting day was always split, which is why we get that great light, already. you've got that great light all the time, all backlit, natural light out yeah. in the desert. Mm. And it's a fantastic location to shoot. Rock, I mean, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, it, it, it looks huge. That's what I like about it. They, they feel yeah. really enclosed and they, they feel like they're just this tiny little dot yeah. in this huge, massive space and they yeah. could be ambushed at any moment. That's what I, like. I loved yeah. about it. And that was my um, idea. Yeah, that was my idea about it was like, because a lot of these guys were going out to Africa and we were very young, like 19-year-olds. And I thought, well, basically, if you're 19, you come from, you know, North Norfolk, perhaps wherever you've been deployed from, and you get shipped to Afghanistan. It's a bit like going to another planet. So that and the soundtrack, yeah. you know, the soundtrack yeah. Nick Crofton on Jones mm. The soundtrack is, is echo, phenomenal echo as well. It, yeah. The, it was the, like the beginning of the film is amazing. Yeah, that was it. It was kind of thought, you know, those movies, trying to think of, you know, okay, it was a bit like, you know, not really like Alien, but that feeling where you're just completely lost in another world. That was the kind of vibe we were going for with that mm, cinematography it, yeah. and, the, and the music, yeah. yeah. Right. So maybe, Matt, do you want to, I know you've got some things on the cast. Do you want to go? Yeah, see I mean, how we get on. No, um, I think <laughs> what I what I like to ask Tom next is, obviously we talked a bit about production there, but how did you get into filmmaking? I mean, obviously you're 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 in the army and you got out in '97. So, I mean, what made you want to get into filmmaking when you came out of the army? And what's what's the background of when you were in the army that sort of fed into this film and, and the experience? 
Um, I think, so when I was in the army, the only film experience, I had this really weird film experience in the army. They have a, they have in the army a film unit sort of set. Well, they have BFCS, they have their own broadcaster. And I was yes. working as what's called an aide-de-camp. It was just after the Gulf War to the commander of British Forces, Cyprus. He said, I want a Christmas film, Tom, Christmas film. And he'd written a script, which is basically him talking to camera, saying how hard it was that we couldn't go home for Christmas and what good job it was doing. And he wanted me to put pictures to it. And he said, look, you've got, I'm going to get you a crew from Nicosia, which was a Cypriot film crew, sound recorders, cameraman. And because I was working with the biggest man in the island, I could just pick up the phone to anybody I wanted. So I'd ring up Akatir and say, you got any tornadoes landing? You know, I'd ring up the armored wrecking squad and say, can you, can you get me some scout cars? Navy, get me a landing craft. And then I got a helicopter off him, off him and we flew around the island filming all this. And I just went, Oh, this is a job. This is producing. This is, I've got to look into this when I leave the army. And that was the sort of first, because nobody at school had told me there was something called filmmaking. Like that was it. And I just thought, I'm going to, I'm going to look into it. And then when I left the army, I thought, oh, well, I asked around. Nobody really moved from the military into the film in my generation. Now there are tons, there are tons of people who've crossed over. And obviously, you've yeah. probably spoken to some guys. Actually, you spoke to Jim Dapple. He was one, he's older than me. Okay, there's one guy, but he was TA. Yeah. Uh, but like I was the first of a couple of guys that moved across, and uh, I rang up a mate of mine. And he said, "Mate of a mate of mine," he said, "Oh yeah, I'm on a film, but don't come down here. It's a porn movie. It's called Preaching to the Perverted." So I then, like, <laughs> I'm not going to go and work on that set. And he gave me another number, which was a guy in Soho. And like you do, I walked into Soho, walked into an office, went up the steps, and there was uh, a guy called Peter Scott again. Now sadly died, and that was the back end of the world when people like Ridley Scott. Alan Parker were just still making TV commercials. I was on the back end of that world, you know. So big budget. Film industry wasn't so great. This was 97, but we had a lot of big TV shoots, and that's what I got into. And I started working on those. That's my first Right. Well, in terms of cast, a cast can make or break a film. So, of course, a lot of the guys that you work with on the film are, uh, I suppose, what you would call character actors. And what, what you would probably... When I was watching it, I, I thought to myself, these guys are probably a really good analogue for all the character actors we saw in those classic 50s and 60s British uh, yeah. war movies, where they're, they're not huge roles, they're jobbing actors, they've done lots of work, but they're super good at what they're doing, and they bring yeah. a lot to each role. And uh, that, was the, that was the feel I got for this. So when you were putting that cast together, what were you looking for, and, and how did it all come together? Yeah, it was age was the first thing really because I wanted to, you know, like mm. you can go, and that happens with stunt casting when you go and grab Pitt, you know, the rest of the you go older than the real guys. But I thought, no, we're gonna go, we're gonna go after the youngest. I think uh, mm. uh, I think Mark, the youngest guy was 19, I think we had. So it was really so the the appropriate age. So we put out this casting brief, and then we just did a really heavy casting. Uh Jeremy Zimmerman did it, good casting director who I've known for a few years got loads of people in, went through it, and actually we cast someone, I can't remember his name, to play Smudge, and then he dropped out. He got Cole Field project, and that's when we got Nav, who actually I thought was brilliant. You know, he just stepped oh, up. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. And he's that kind of, I could see, because it, it, all these characters were basically supposed to be characters I kind of know of, or or they're kind of like uh, tropes, cliche from the, from the military, you know, so the, 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 the Nav character is like the backroom lawyer, and and mates of mine who'd been in the army, they went, yeah, I recognise that guy. Yeah, there's always one of those. Actually, there was one in Long and the Short and the Tall, because it's a similar character, the one who yes. always questions everything. 
Yeah, yeah regardless. You know, yeah, just, yeah. You know. I forget the character's name, but he's exactly yeah. the same thing. Yeah. And then um, Ben Wrighton obviously played the officer. I was kind of looking someone, I hate to say this, kind of looking someone who's a bit like me, kind of a bit younger, like someone who's like a bit like, I know he was more, he was more, I don't hope Ben doesn't get excited. He was more like, he was actually posher, I think, more rugby than me. Like he, like, we look at him. <laughs> so it yeah. definitely be kind of infantry officer material. Um, and that was it, because I knew the characters well in my own head in terms of what the real ones would look like. So that was the thing, just going through the casting. And Jeremy just got a load of people in, went through three or four castings and got those guys. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Mm. I really like the multinational, um, multiculturalness of the men because that's much more of an accurate representation of the British Army now. Um, I really appreciated that. And having, you know, Nav coming from a um like about his background. I, I'm not sure if he's Muslim or if he's uh, Sikh or yeah. what his British Asian is. London British sort of Asian, background, yeah, that's it? what I meant. Yeah. yeah, it really it's just, you know, those sorts of areas, the working class areas where people genuinely are recruited from or join up from, it felt really true. And that's just mm. something that it's like it echoes like nine men if you've seen it, if you've listened to our episode on it. That yeah. little cross section of chaps feels very England nineteen forty. Yeah. Like the men folk, this feels very two thousand and six. Yeah, you know, makeup of Britain. I think that's a really strong element of it. But it, you don't, you didn't do what other movies might have done, which is really put it up forward. It's just there. It's just a thing. Yeah. That's yeah. what I think really is good about the casting. It's just it's there. No, but that didn't overplay. And also the other thing about that that we didn't really go down that route is my day. Uh, a lot of like. Um, Commonwealth soldiers came through, so a lot of Fijians, yeah. people like that. You know, so you had you had like you the people like Nav or or maybe West Indian background, like you know, Nikki Beverly who plays a sergeant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you go back a bit, the war movies are portraying the reality, which was you'd have white units and then you'd have an Indian battalion, and the Indian battalion was yeah, completely yeah. Indian. So if you watch 1970, they, they mixed it up, and suddenly you got a guy in a turban in a Sikh in the middle of a truck with a bunch of guys, and they're in the wrong unit because you know that the Sikhs were in a separate unit. That's how it all worked back then. Um, but yeah, no, I just tried to represent what I'd experienced myself. You know, I didn't, and and actually, the guy we had first in for casting for um, for Nav's role was a white guy. So I was, he was a working cast. So you know, I was like, whatever, whatever, where it comes. Yeah. So I did like Nikki Beverly for the sergeant because I thought, kind of mm. historically, I thought if you were like from West Indian background being put in that position where this is your life do you know what i mean i don't know if that came across in the film but there's a real yeah yeah, yeah. this is your life he does talk you, about that this is the thing you've really built up to and now you and spoiler now you can have it trash it's like you know that that was that was kind of a bit of a motivator yeah. that character yeah mm, i like how their you know their outlook on things is challenged um but not through themselves you know through the the plot and the what's going on around them i really enjoyed that um mm. so maybe we should Move on to the alley tally like we do. It's time for alley tally on fighting on film. So, I mean, to lead off, did you have any obstacles with sourcing kit and equipment? Because obviously, it's more modern gear. Is that is that harder to to source? Yeah, we had we didn't have problems sourcing. We had problems getting it into Morocco. So I think Libya war was either on or was winding up when we went out there. And the insurers were like, "Going, well, what are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, you know, we'll be the one of the best armed, armed units in the area." <laughs> I said, "We're going to have two Brownings and a, a load of AK. Yeah, we'll have some stuff with us." 
we might have to recommission it. But anyway, that's why I said to him jokingly. But actually getting it out into the country is really tough because Morocco um, is very, very strict. So basically there was a coup a long time ago in Morocco. So they're very strict. And the government doesn't trust the army with weapons. So when you go there, it's handed into the gendarmes who then lock it up every night. You literally wait for the gendarmes to hand it out to the army in the morning to, to get your weapons out. And we had a bit of a problem to start with, which was that DHL, bless them, broke the containers in Heathrow Airport. So we lost the weapon shipment. Tom Stewart was down there at the airport to sign over all the weapons. They didn't show up, rang me up. I was in the, up in the desert and said, oh, no weapons, Tom, what are going to do? So we started shooting two days later, which on that on that schedule was pretty sketchy. Anyway, mm. but no, we, we, we did get them out there. Um, there was an armourer, there was cohort supplied the arms, so they're, they're like Bapti, they're one of the bigger, bigger armourers. And um, yeah, we took the five O's out there. I don't know if you saw it, we tried to make the brandings jam deliberately a bit because there was this thing going on. I don't know if they mentioned the film, I think they did mention the film. We, there was a bad batch of uh, Russian, Russian, Pakistan, yeah. Pakistani yeah. animals used by, and that was about 2008, eight nine. So I made that point that, you know, they got the bad batch of ammo ramming into the yes. you know, breaches and mm. messed up. Mm. Um yeah, but no, no, that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't too bad. We we got it, we got it all out there in the end. And uh yeah. But the but the guys hadn't married up with the weapons before they got to the country. So they had to do a lot of catching up with the weapons training when we when we that got was another question I was going to ask you was obviously a lot of big films since I don't know Platoon have, have done boot camps. Yeah. Is that something you did with the guys just to get them, you know, to look right with the the equipment? Yeah, so we took them on a, I think it was forty eight hour trip up to Wales, and um, were mean to them for a bit. Not not too bad, but like just to kind of give them the whole Brecon treatment, right? Give them the whole Brecon treatment. Yeah, I mean, there's some legendary boot camps. I think Platoon's got to be one of the one, one of the better ones I've ever heard of, which sounds horrific. Uh, and, mm. and actually, I know that they sprung from the boot camp to the opening scene of that film. Someone told me that on another podcast, actually. It's like, so they literally came out of the boot camp, were told they were going to stand down, went and had a few beers, and they got woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning and sent into the jungle to act out the first scene, which is method acting. But I did do quite a lot of that. I did quite a lot of, uh, I don't know, if you ever get the guys, it's like, I did make them walk a lot, and I did make them patrol a lot, and I didn't tell them what was going on, and I didn't. And there was this big thing about accommodation, which was... Um, the oasis was sort of a beautiful oasis and one side there was like a couple of huts and the other side was like a proper eco village and the cast didn't suss out for about a week that we were in the eco village and they were in these two huts all like crammed in together sweaty and you know i don't know whether that was the right thing to do to them it was method but <laughs> <laughs> you well, mentioned like earlier it. that you broke for lunch yeah was it hard to get the guys back into the mindset of being in afghanistan when you came back for that second session of shooting per day a bit but you know what that's that's kind of what being an operations is like there's a lot of it's downtime just sleeping and then suddenly mm. someone wakes up and goes oh can you go and do this it's like that's what happens mm. it's like that's the real thing but yeah performance wise they just got into a really good groove i i felt like because the thing about actors, and they're all really young and, and really enthusiastic, they practice their weapons drills. They had a competition about weapons drills when they were in camp. Yes. You know, they'd be stripping the weapons down. They got faster, I should say this, but they did get faster than the veterans were with us. They had competitions for money. Uh, so, like, <laughs> there was a point, and I, I shot it, actually. They were up on a hill doing something. I said, Stu, let's turn over. They're walking over that hill looking actually like. You can believe that is a real unit. And that wasn't directed they just went up there and started doing all the drills the right step because we tried to get them to the right separation 
because one thing that's always been warm movies, everyone's always really bunched up, you know, like, like that, and you just wouldn't be like that. So I made them spread out, try and do something, something approaching the drills. Yeah, I love all the that sort of desert DPM look. You've got the, the chess rigs, the SE80s with the you know one's got a UGL on it. I really like that. But one thing that I think stands out for me in the Alley Tally this week is just the amount of SA80 bashing that goes on in this movie. It's absolutely <laughs> incredible, and I, I've written down. One of my favourite exchanges where he goes, uh, he's moaning about the SE80 and the, the lieutenant pipes up from the one of the Wemix and, and just out of shot. He goes, actually, the A2 is an improved weapon. And uh, Smudge goes, well, if it's so significantly good... Significantly improved weapon. Significantly improved. And Smudge goes, well, if it's so good, name me any other army that uses it. And that just lost... I just chuckle every time I hear that because <laughs> me and Matt, we chat often about the SE80 and it's tumultuous period of service we think well no one actually does use this weapon other than the british army. jamaican defense force jamaican defense that's such a funny line yeah because Matt's right. the bolivians bolivians yeah yeah does does that come from your experience of using the weapon yeah, or where, where's not, that come from it's just not the best weapon is it you know give me anything <laughs> give me personally anything else i mean i mean go through this i started out i'm old enough to start out with slr that was all right you know that was a was a bit of an earthquake yeah. but you could stop stop an elephant with that. I like <laughs> I like things like the Bren gun. I remember the Bren gun when I was a cadet. I had a Bren gun. That was a bloody good weapon. And then you know Browning's a good weapon. M sixteen's a great weapon. But the S eighty, you know, I just remember being issued it and, and, and people used to run into trees and then the, they had because the magazine was releases on the outside. Simple things that you wouldn't. Yeah, magazine releases on the outside. You run into a tree, your magazine drops off. That's the last <laughs> thing you're going to want. It's like, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's a design. Yeah. You guys probably know more about its history. You know, it's, it's just funny because you hear a lot of that time where people were complaining about the equipment they had. I remember it being in the news. Yeah. I remember, I I remember was a big a Guardian editorial piece about it. Yeah. About it. Yeah. You know, I remember a guy being, I was in Sabre Sales, if you remember that big military yeah. shop in Portsmouth. Um, and there was a, a guy serving in there, probably about 2009, 2010. And he was like, oh, I'm buying extra magazine pouches and extra water bottles because I did yeah. my first tour and I had one, like I had enough, enough for like one water bottle and stuff like that. And he was saying how, you know, interesting it was. And I think I, I you know, for him to be so brazen about that at the time is quite telling, but I kind of like, like the moaning of it. It's very accurate. Well, that's what it. It and also everyone got, so I remember there was that big shop down East London, Silverman's, you remember Silverman's? Yeah, so still going in like, if you want a pair of boots, you went to Silverman's because that was the only place you could get a pair of boots that actually wouldn't wear out, fall apart on, you know. And also, before Gore-Tex was issued, that was my day, we didn't have Gore-Tex. You could get Gore-Tex, you know, silly Gore-Tex, and they did it in camouflage. That's what we went to buy, you know, because mm. everything issued to you was uh, not terribly good as it was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so where did you where did you get the Wemixes from? Were they, were they in country? Did you have to ship them in? No, but they got left there. <laughs> they never oh, made it out. <laughs> they never made it. I want to know what's happened to them, actually. Last time I saw them, they were sitting in Marrakesh Airport. I went there on holiday, and they, they you know, they broke down, and we couldn't get them out. They were on a carne. So then basically they got signed over to customs, and they just sat there, and then they were gone. So someone out there is, you know, probably a surf company is operating them as a... Perhaps they're in a museum. And then we shipped them. We shipped them, I drove, and then shipped them. The guys... Um, one of the guys had been in the, I think it was the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers, one of them, and they they teamed up, two of them, and they brought them out uh, with a load of kit, 
you know, they brought out a load of surplus, get sort of uniforms, spare uniforms, all that. They went out via Spain. Can you imagine that? Camouflage vehicles. So did, you, did then, you buy them off the surplus market for the film? Is that what you did? Uh, he he owned them and we rented them off him. And so they right. Because <clears throat> they look wow. the business. They look really good. Well, they're perfect. He welded it, them up. It, it, yeah. They're just long with a base ladder. He welded them up. They look yeah. spectacular. And obviously, they actually got the mounts for the brownies and stuff because they needed that. And, and, you know, yeah, they look great. No, they really do. It reminds me, reminded me a lot of certain sections of the movie when they're driving around in them and they're engaging at these incredibly long distances and you can't see what they're hitting. It reminded me of the, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's a Sky documentary from about 2007 called Pathfinders. And it really, really reminded me of that. Um, I think it was the first yeah. big documentary that showed, um, it was the, the Jackal had just come out and it was about oh, these guys using the Jackal. Yeah. Um, and it really reminded me of that, you know, just the engagement distances, the guys just. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's firing blindly at anything if they're getting any like contact back. It's just a really, really strong element of the movie for me. It was something that I thought, you know, because like if you think about, so the range of the brownie is like what one eight hundred or something. So like, the, the engagement ranges are long. You know, you don't want to get too close if you if you can help it. No, of and course then, not. And then also the other thing is this thing where you know it's that war movie cliche where they see the enemy creeping up. Blah, blah, blah. When you're in contact, they're never going to see anything. You know, all you hear is and if it's in a built up area, you just hear the echoes. So I wanted to portray that kind of chaos yeah. of. And, and I got criticised. I remember people asking me in QA, so why can't I see the enemy? It's, well, you know, you won't, that's it. You know, unless somebody yeah. jumps out right in front of you, you're not going to see them. That's not going to be the thing, you know. Well, that's um, for me, that's well, one of the stronger elements of the movie. Sorry, Sorry it's, yeah, just quickly, it's very, it's one for me, one of the stronger elements of the movie that you don't see the enemy. Like everything I've seen or read about Afghanistan or had friends that were out there, they were like, well, we'd get engaged at whatever distance and we'd call yeah. in fast air. Like it, it, we wouldn't, try and sacrifice ourselves if we could help it yeah um, then those guys who are unarmed the twitchers on the bikes and stuff you see that the people are spotters who are yeah. you know, they're unarmed so you can't do anything about them because the rules of engagement with that is you can't deal with those in any way yeah, yeah. It's, it, that's why i like the movie though it feels true in its representation yeah um, try, what were you saying true. sorry it's fiction but it's true yeah yeah of course okay. go on matt sorry i interrupted you matt I, I was just going to say it's it's that whole unseen enemy, um, you know, technique of it, you can't see the enemy. It's it's a strong filmmaking um, tool as well as being you know true to yeah. true to reality. Yeah, uh, it, it works really well because you know the, the guys 
are engaging, but you can't see anyone firing back. You, but you, what I really did like um, in terms of authenticity was that crack of yeah. incoming fire over the, which a lot of films completely don't right. do because they have no idea of that's what a bullet coming towards you time, sounds yeah. like. Yeah, so we tried recording it for real, putting bullets over a mic, it topped out flat line. So then we used whip, a whip, right. and we smacked it into a table several times, and that gave us the crack. Because that's the thing is like, if you've never been shot at, you don't know that sound. So then you make yeah. these other sounds, which are bzz, bzz, and uh, yeah. no, it's a crack. <laughs> that's what that's the whistle. The crack is what you hear. So like, I really want to try and and when we put it in the cinema, we we took some veterans, put them in the cinema, and we put them in a big seven, you know, Dolby seven speakers around. And that went around the cinema at the back, and they're like, oh, you know, you could see yeah, that. that yeah, like, yeah, we did work. We did work at that actually. That sound effect. Yeah, yeah, the sound I is think, another. I really think it really adds element. to it. it really mm. does. I really liked the the little splicing of the Apache like gun camera that takes out the other Wimmick. Yeah. I thought that was a really nice little thing to include. I thought but that was nod, that went really well. That. We've got some. Yeah, the, 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 the biggest thing about that was like you know like. That cliche, the explosion so big they shot it seven times. It was literally like that. <laughs> we rolled both cameras, right? And there was this brilliant, uh, uh, there's this brilliant SSFXX guy I work out with um, called um, O'Connor. He's Irish, he's from Spain, Irish explosives expert. There you go. Anyway, he, wow. he um, he's amazing, <clears throat> worked with the locals. And our explosive wasn't really apparently very good, it was quite like low grade. And he just spent the day prepping that shot with like. Little, you know, um, water bottles, plastic water bottles, cutting lids off them, inverting. They dug it all in. We knew pretty much we had enough exposed to get one good hit. And he said, where do you want to shoot it? And I went, we're going to do it over the shoulder from above like that. And we covered it as well from the side with the with the camera hitting the wall. But to do your main shot over the shoulders, then go, have I made a terrible mistake? Should we have just locked it off really close and just made sure we catch it? But it worked really well. I loved it. And I thought mm. that, that, that actually, from my mind, from my like directing point of view, was 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 one of my happy moments in the film. Yeah, that it came on. Yeah. No, it was great. It looks that fantastic. Whole sequence is really good. Really good. Yeah, being hit with the IED as well. It just out of out of the blue. You're not expecting it. Again, like fiction but true. Um, yeah. Really like that. Really think it's strong. So talking about strong things in the movie, maybe we should move on to favourite scenes. And Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Um, Matt, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, as I said there, that the the ambush sequence is really good. But what obviously stands out for me was a lot of the uh, the interpersonal scenes, and I really loved about the film. Um, all of the frictions between the guys and the various different layers of it. So you've got the class element of the squaddies, the working class guy, and the Ruperts, the officers. And then you've also got the the intermix of units. So you've got a TA guy, you've got a Royal Marine commando who is sort of been attached to them because he missed his unit's tour. And you get all these interesting interpersonal sort of frictions and clashes. Um, and initially they're just banter, but as the two-day patrol goes into a two-week patrol, everything gets more serious, everyone's more tense, and it, everyone's jarring off one another. And I, I loved some of the dialogue you had in there, but just picking a few lines out when I was watching it earlier. Um, Rob's already mentioned the the, the SA-80 sl- um, 
uh, slander that goes on in the film. But there's a great line where um, Private, it, it, I think it's, I think it's the lieutenant. He says, "Private Smith, would you please stop slagging off the equipment?" It's just, <laughs> just such a, a nice little line. Um, and there's the bit where they they talk about borrowing some um, 50 caliber ammunition off the the ANA, the African National Army, and he says, "Now we're borrowing ammo off people we came here to to save, essentially." Yeah, there's these little lines that I really liked out of the script, and I, I a lot of that reminds me of you know those older um, British war movies where a lot happens in the dialogue. It's not always action. Yeah. Um, it's often yeah. about interpersonal relationships and the way char- characters sort of interact and develop. And I think I think the film does that really well. Yeah, it's um, interesting. Yeah, they're yeah, my favorite parts. Fun. There's a good, yeah, because I, I wanted to show, because often I think that, again, is a war movie cliche where the unit goes there, they take some casualties, but they're all strong and they all finish well together. Mm. But go figure, if you're under that much pressure, that may not be the way. And it's been my experience that sometimes that isn't the way that goes and the frictions really blow up, people that end up yeah. fights over stuff. And there's a, there's, a, there's a normal mailer book called Naked of the Dead, they go Southern Pacific, really good book, cover the patrol, a patrol, Walking through the jungle where they all fall apart. That that is a common that's a common kind of thing. That's a kind of real life scenario. And I just wanted to, I mean, I probably pushed it a bit, but like I wanted to portray that kind of like how those interplays all lead to conflict. And the more and more the pressure grows, and the more and more you know things go wrong, people get hurt, the more that can blow up. And and then how hard it is, obviously, the officers to try and keep it on the rails. Mm. It really reminded me of that those elements that Matt was talking about, like the the friction and the like sort of it just all builds it really reminded me of uh, battleground and uh, attack we did we did recently on the show we did battleground a, a few years ago but you know these are movies where men aren't just there to shoot at jerry's and and run about a bit they're actually having way more to say on their actual situation and that's where the movie for me is unique because a lot of those British war film classics of the 50s and 60s, they don't really get into that very much. You know, The Cruel Sea does a little bit. Yeah. Um, something like Nine Men does a little bit, but not really at, at a personal level like this film. And I think as another thing I really, one of the things I love about this movie is you have a, a death really early on. Taff gets hit, but it's not dwelled upon like it would be in, a, in another film or someone else's take because... It, for people who haven't seen it, Taff gets hit and it looks like it goes through his body armour. You later learn that it hits him at the side and he's evacuated. But you don't learn of his death until later on in the movie and his death leads to the... It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. And, it, and that's just a very strong thing because now the guys have this... They, had, they were angry at the fact he was hurt, but they now are extremely angry because they blame the officer class for him being killed when it's not that at all but it it's just that whole these these personal relationships you know the banter will get them through but when there's not it's like taff was the main banterer and smudge just sort of is really affected by that i really think that's a strong part of the movie it's much more of a an interpersonal type war film than it is an, an actioner and i really appreciate that yeah yeah definitely Definitely, that's what I, that's what I wanted. And I was trying to show, like, because as an officer, you have to stand there. If the policy's a mess, right, and you're in a situation like that, and the policy clearly for them is a mess, you've still got to front up the policy. You know, you, you can't turn around and go like, oh, well, we'll just pack up and leave, you know, or whatever you would 
want to do but i was trying to show that just because you've got a uniform on doesn't make dehumanize you just because you in the military you're still a human being so all the same yeah. motivations all of us have all the same you know emotions everything's going to be the same you're just in a in a in a very pressured situation i think that's what there's another thing where it just stands apart because there aren't many war films well there are there are you know there are obviously war films that do this but not often than not your bigger Hollywood movies don't really get that level of it. They might hint at it, but when you do an independent production like this, you've got way more scope. You haven't yeah. got a studio saying, look, we need yeah. more action. There's there's no, you haven't had an explosion for 10 minutes. What the hell are you doing? Like you've you got the opportunity. Uh, you would, yeah. If it was a big commercial film, you would not get away with that. No, you, you, you yeah. get a bit of it, you know, you get say a private line while they're sitting around the campfire playing a record for five minutes or a minute and then they're gone. And that's as close as, yeah, you wouldn't get it. Um, mm. Um, I did think that one was the one Band of Brothers TV series. I thought they did quite good stuff. Off, you know, yeah, there's a bit did. of that in that. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. But I also have this theory, and I was going to ask you about it. So, when the men are out in the open, they're very professional soldiers, and they have this outward look um, of you know doing the drills, patrolling, driving around in the the Wemixes. and then when they're inside um, in the compound, they have these outbursts. They have the banter. They have complaining about kit was that a a, a a narrative choice for you to have when they're out in the open they present themselves when they're inside they're in and they can talk about their inner thoughts and i'm probably being a bit theatrical about it but no that's exactly that's a, because because it's, it's because they're they're highly professional they're members of the british are highly professional they're never going to let anything get in the way of the job the job mm. comes first but the, but away from the job when you have that downtime when they're somewhere relatively safe then yeah that's when the when things get expressed that aren't being expressed I mean, you can't stop in the middle of a in patrol and have a bust up about something that's no, not of course happen. not and it never would yeah. really happen i think um so yes that is exactly a narrative choice and i think it's quite a real choice yeah mm. no it's, it's really strong is there a specific scene um that stands out for you that you're you know really fond of or proud of I think a lot of the experiences were kind of based on my own uh, sort of own experiences. And there's the one where they have to where the officer has to break the news to Taff, which is something like about mm. Taff's death, and I'd have to do that myself to solve, you know, to my men. Right. And that's like I like that scene. I don't know what happened in that scene, but I remember. I don't know if they're going to hate me for this. Some people burst into tears on they were watching it from by that tree. I don't know the sunlight. I don't know how well it comes across in the film, but it was an evening shot, sun. It was just very yeah. moving. And you know, you felt like and Ben delivered the lines. I think we did it one take or two takes or something, and then just went, that's that's okay. We're not gonna do it. I was supposed to cut around and do a facial and fuck uh, forget that. We're just gonna we're just gonna we're gonna print that. That's good. So that scene was quite quite moving for me. Yeah. It is very affecting because you get the you know the two officers one doesn't want to tell the men mm. because he knows it's going to break them but the other officer's like well, we can't not tell them because if they find out it's yeah. going to be worse if they're, like, they're, that, then they'll be really angry so when you know someone's been hurt uh or dead if you know someone's dead and there's lots of different in the military there's lots of different networks of um radios so it depends which network it's come over so in that case i sort of portrayed the reality that it came over on a higher formation net so only the officers have that information if there was a watchkeeper there, he might have got it as well, but I didn't really like bother that semantics. But you know that might spread somewhere else down the networks, and then eventually someone would find out, and that probably would be worse. If if people have found out that 
everyone knew and, and you didn't know, then that would be a bad, that would be worse. Yeah. I and mean, that was the point the character Ben plays is making. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it comes across, like, yeah. And it gives the characters way more agency and a chance to react to something rather than yeah. having them hear it secondhand, which is, you know, and they're, yeah. it allows their characters to develop and actually take it on board. Um, so maybe we should ease into final thoughts like we usually do. Oh, no, but before we do, we should actually do our listener question for this week. So Brian oh, yeah. Williams, mm-hmm. one of our Patreons, if, if you're not yeah. a fighting on film Patreon member, this is one of the perks that you get when we have guests on like Tom, you can ask mm-hmm. some questions. And he asks, how important was it that the soldiers were seen to talk as soldiers and not as actors playing soldiers, which you often see in films? Yes, I, I wanted the dialogue to uh, make I want those characters to be believable to people who served in the military. You know, I don't. This, this, what, what I think about this film is that it's not accurate in terms of like any. And I think if you've been an Afghan vet, you look at it, go, oh, there's all sorts of things wrong with this film. There are loads, loads. It's not because it's fiction. But I wanted uh, people who served in the military to recognise those characters, like I say, the nav, and for them to talk. And again, probably wouldn't have got away with so much of it on a bigger production. Like sometimes Stu, you know, the, the, my DOP, generally go, what are they talking about now? I said, never mind, Stu, it'll come, it'll come out in the wash. People either like understand roughly what they're saying, but maybe the emotion will come out or whatever, because I wanted them to speak yeah. in the language they would have spoken in. And, and, and also they're quite, it's quite sometimes quite rude, you know, it's kind of like on the nose. It's kind of, that's how it is, you know, that that's mm. how people talk. And I like the fact that the the officers use a lot more jargon than the men do. The men are just very more straight with how they're talking. The officers are saying the jargon because sometimes when the officers are talking, I was like, I'm I don't know this this abbreviation, but it made complete sense for these guys to be saying it, um, which is really nice. So, I mean, final thoughts, chaps, for this week. I've got a couple of of, uh, questions um, that fit in nicely with final thoughts. Obviously, with the film, you wanted to spark a, a conversation about um, Pachami's preparedness for for an insurgent anti counterinsurgency campaign like this. Do you think the film helped start that conversation? And do you think it's a conversation around preparedness that we still need to be having? Yeah, it's a really interesting. That's a really good question. I think I would be very arrogant to say this sparked the conversation. I think what I what what I I might have been one of the very early people to put my head over the parapet and say, this is not working. Um, I mean, the key thing about an insurgency is it really isn't a military operation. It's a political uh, It's a political thing. Mm. And if you can't provide an alternative narrative to insurgents, which we weren't doing, they're going to win. But yet, when, when the Taliban took uh, Kabul, people were still surprised. So uh, my narrative didn't carry that far. It was obvious to me they were going to win. I mean, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And then the bit about preparedness, I mean, the army is very small now. I mean, we've just given uh, quite a large amount of our armour fleet to Ukraine. You know, I mean, there is a thing there where we as a country do need, you do, if you're going to have a military in certain places, you need to spend the money. You do. There's no, there's no question about it. If they, if they have to make do with stuff that doesn't work or, you know, equipment second rate, that's just, that's just not fair on them. I think that's, I've always felt that, you know, I do think that. I think there's a, there is a conversation now to have this is a very political topic about what exactly we want our military to do because you've got to, you've got to pay for them to do things you've got to pay for their equipment if you want them to go places and do things or or not you know but then don't expect mm-hmm. them to be able to do stuff yeah you know give them the tools that old quote my other question um 
Yeah. My my other question was, have you had any feedback from uh, veterans of Afghanistan and, and what do they think about the film and do they think it's an accurate representation? That sort of thing. Yeah, I think I think the the, the feedback I got was was quite a lot of it was negative, a lot of it was negative. And honestly, I did a screening to veterans. A lot of them recognised the problem, but like I was in other campaigns, and the trouble with coming out of a campaign is you don't really want someone to tell you that that was a waste of time. That's not what you want. It's not what I'm saying. It's kind yeah, of, of course. not what I'm saying, but you know what I mean. Um, and that's a tough call for anyone. You know, people lost their limbs, people lost their lives. You know. It was, it was a, it's a tragedy and no lives wasted. I mean, I'm not saying they wasted their lives. It's just that is a really tough thing to, to, to take on board. And a lot of people are still living with that pain, you know. Um, I think that's why that conversation for us in Britain was hard to have because we never got, like, if you take something like the Vietnam War, it was a, it was a crossroads where that became massively publicly unpopular. But we never did that because in Britain, I think we very much support our armed forces, you know, we've got a good ethos in this country. But just because you're supporting armed forces does not mean you have to support the government policy. But those two things were intertwined in Afghanistan and nobody was able to kind of, the media were not able to get themselves across that Rubicon and separate the two issues. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But then I had other veterans who went, bloody hell, that was accurate. So, you know, I don't know. It depends on, it also depends <laughs> on the experience. I suppose another way, thing with, with Afghanistan. Yeah. Another thing with Afghanistan is it was such a long conflict. Exactly. Everyone's experience of it evolved. So it's, people that were there in 2006 yeah. did not have the same experience as people that were there in 2011, 2012, 2013. Exactly. And if you, you take know. That, if you take the patrol and you think, I wrote that in 2009, so those patrols, that's representing 2008 or right at the beginning. It's really ancient history by the time you get to the end of the conflict. The kit they were using at the end and the kit mm. they were using is completely different, you know, even, yeah, everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Desert DPMs out, you've got the the yeah. uh, the A two SA eighties have got the urgent operational requirement wow. with the nice new four ends yeah. and various bits of kit have been added and they're in jackals rather than snatches yeah. and stuff yeah. and yeah. yeah I really enjoy this movie first time I watched it, it was a couple of years ago I think it was just as we started doing final film and we would go me and Matt would go off and scurry away on the internet looking for like you know independent rare obscure war films um. And this popped up and I watched it and I was like, Matt, we have to do this. We, we must do this movie. It's such an interesting yeah. film. Yeah. Um, and it's in that mould of really strong British films that say a lot more than just what is on screen. You know, your dialogue's very enriching. You've got a great cast who've gone on to do some you know, very good things. You know, you, you yourself, you're coming off of being in the army you're using your own experience things like that there aren't many films like this is what i'm trying to say um and i just really think it's fantastic and i would implore anyone who hasn't seen it to go and see it you know yeah. there's conflict between ncos and men the minimal soundtrack but when the soundtrack comes in it's really moody um you know the whole thing about being inside and outside the the just everything about it as matt would say the mise en scene is fantastic there's there's something is, here yeah. And I really do think it's a triumph. I think you'd be very, should be very, very proud of it. Um, yeah. I, love, I love the way that you approached it with the vignettes of various different experiences within the patrol. And then you had that uh, overarching conversation between the captain and the judge advocate, which I believe was played by yourself. Played by me. I voiced voiceover, it, which... it and then we never did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> well, it works really well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I really like... We made yeah. that decision. I... That, and that's another strong thing about the movie. There is that little overarching thing about 
the post part of it. And I, I wonder, oh, should there have been a scene at the end where it shows him talking to him? And I was like, no, I actually like the fact it just ends with them leaving. I think that's yeah. nice. That's all you yeah. need. Also, someone said, like, you know, was I interrogating my own movie? Like, it's really existential. I'm talking to one of the <laughs> one of the cast. Where have we gone here? Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very good. I like it. So yeah. like my final question really would be, do you have any plans for a follow-up movie? Is there anything in the works? I, I do, I do, actually. We had um, we went into lockdown. I don't know if you know, I'm going to advertise my book. Can I advertise my book? On the of course, book? I was just about of to mention your book, but of course well, you anyway, can. Anyway, so we went into lockdown. So basically what happened was I had another project on the pipeline about the Battle of Murbat. Do you know anything about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yes, that would be, that. <laughs> that would be a good film, wouldn't it? That would be a good episodes film. where we've talked about what would make a great war yeah, movie, and Merbat always comes up. Yeah, so I actually we got quite a long way down the road with that. We were actually at the Berlin Film Festival, February 2020, when everyone started going, oh, I don't feel very well. I've got a bit of a chest infection. And I went, oh, I'll probably get over it. <laughs> no. <laughs> so that that kiboshed that that particular production, and we um and I'm actually getting it fired back up. So hopefully, hopefully, next couple of years that will be the thing, and that'll come out, and that'll be a that'll oh, be fantastic. Yeah, and it'll be you know it's same sort of territory. It's very much a boiler room story kind of small unit, you know, which is what I do, isn't it? Small unit mm. stuck in the middle. If you, need, if you need any extras, just in the background, fire us up. Me and Matt, me and Matt, there. You come out to a special. We're bound to shoot you. <laughs> oh, come out to a special. Oh, I'd love to. Still set, to do that. and you can go and look to. at the kit. Hueys and. <laughs> Oh, there'll be brownings in it. Browning five O's always, yeah, always. That'd be fantastic. Um, so yeah, I thought you know, talking about your recent book, um, Speed Aggression Surprise: The Untold Story of the, of the SAS. Yeah. Um, is there anything? I mean, that looks amazingly well received. Have you got any plans of turning that into something? I know well, Rogue Heroes has come no, out. Rogue Heroes but... kind of done it, haven't they? So I was writing that, you know, the definitive account of the origins of the SS, and then I found out that the kudos on BBC were making it. I went, oh, right, okay. So that's going to be like a bigger budget. But actually, to be honest, when it's come out, I've quite really, because they didn't cover Dudley Clark. So my main character, if you've read it, is like Dudley Clark. At least half the book covers. Yeah, he's fascinating. The Dominic yeah. West character in the thing, who I think slightly steals the show of the whole uh, oh, yeah. Rogue because it just knocks it out of the park, doesn't it? It's slightly. And the true thing is, Dudley Clark was a was a kind of Machiavellian cross-dresser, this very maverick army officer in his 40s. Who, you know, he, but he created the commandos, the US Rangers, SAS, CIA. You could probably credit him with that because he, he spoke to, um, you know, Wild Bill Donovan, who was the American uh, attache when he came to Cairo. So, you know, I, I think there's a there's a thing there. I did, to be honest, the book's done. Uh, the book came out of COVID because I couldn't do any filming. So I wrote a book. I said to my wife, it's timing to write books now. I wrote it, so I've done it. Um, but yeah, I think there might be something there. I don't know whether, it, I don't know what it would be. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it would be, it would be the Dominic West character. I think you'd do it from that point of view. You'd do yeah, it. I- his fast. character would make a fantastic series of its own, definitely. Yeah, because it's almost like it's almost it's got gone. like a feel. You know those old films. There's a there's a scene. Spoiler alert for my book. There's a scene where he goes to Norway in a bloody um, old Clipper airliner, and they chuck him out in the field in a blown up rubber dinghy, and then they leave him there. And it's almost like you know this very old. Yeah, this feels like a fifties war movie where you go, "What is going on? This is nuts. He can't. This can't be a true story. Like, how is this yeah, happening? Like, something like I was Monty's double or. Well, actually, like I was once his double. Was his story? He cast the character. He was that was his there idea. It's his idea. He watched. Um, he watched. Uh, uh, what film is it? Is it two something's past Cairo? Fox in Cairo. One of those ones. Might either be Fox. I don't think it's Fox. It's one of those ones. He was sitting in a cinema in Italy, 
And he saw this guy walk on playing a Royal Tanks officer and went, that guy looks like Montgomery. And he made a note of it. And he thought, when the Normandy lands, he said, we could fake that guy. And the saddest thing about Clark, he never got to write his own story. So all this stuff came out, Operation Mincemeat, which was his, he had a bigger plan than that. With all his stories, you know, he never got to do it himself because he was bound by the official secrets. So, yeah, definitely something there. Wow. Something there. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I really hope you get something done on that one. Yeah, but no, I mean, yeah. yeah, to to wrap up, I mean, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. It's been um, so eye-opening and amazing talking to you about your film. Um, oh, and brilliant. again... Yeah, listeners, if you haven't watched it, it's it's out there. It's easily findable. Please watch it and you know drop. Amazon Prime right now. There's no excuse. Yeah, and I encourage all the directors get on here. Directors and producers get on here because that's good, isn't it? If you get like other directors, you should get on it. It's great podcast. Find it really interesting. Yeah, it's that half the battle is finding industry people that that want to come on, um, and they're not busy. That's half the problem. Well, I'll find some. I'll find some for you. (laughs) Please do. Please do. Watch this space, folks. Watch this space. So as always, thanks for listening once again, everyone. And you can find the rest of the show on fightingoffilm.com. Start from episode one, have a fuck binge. And uh, we will catch you next time. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Yes, that was brilliant, guys. Thank you very much. Take care. Fantastic. Thanks, Tom. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.